Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Human Octane. If you're the kind of person who pushes the limit, then you've got to check out Human Octane Apparel training and racing apparel designed by OCR athletes, and these guys just get it. Everything they make dries lightning fast, has zippered pockets, is abrasion resistant in high contact areas without bulky padding. I've gotten to know these guys, and trust me, they're going to out-innovate the competition when it comes to OCR gear. Check them out at humanoctane.com. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. What an amazing opportunity. I finally... Actually, with the assistance of my wingman, Sean Kahn, was able to snare Dr. Irene Davis for a conversation about biomechanics and the whole concept of running mechanics, I guess. I was going to say barefoot, but I guess we're going to get to that soon enough. Sean, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing great, Richard. Excited to talk to you and uh, talk to Irene and just learn more about the process. Well, why don't you uh, let people know who it is we're speaking with? Absolutely. Absolutely. So for those that don't know, Dr. Irene Davis is currently the director of the Spalding National Running Center, as well as uh, the Spalding Hospital in Cambridge, and being a visiting professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation for the Harvard Medical School. Her research is mostly focused on the relationship between lower extremity structure, mechanics, and musculoskeletal injury. She's pioneered the area of retraining faulty gait patterns in both walking and running. She's devoted the last decade to developing protocols to alter runners' gait patterns and thereby reduce those mechanics known to cause injuries, often caused by footwear. She's received funding from multiple avenues, as well as given over 300 lectures, both nationally and internationally, and authored over 110 publications. I could go on and on, but I'll be here forever. So, Irene, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Sean, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking to both you and Richard. You know, Sean, i got to get you to start smoking weed. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to mellow your role a little bit, buddy. <laughs> so the only correct – I want to make one correction. So I'm actually sure. a full professor at Harvard Medical School. When I first uh, came to Harvard, I was a visiting professor while I was undergoing the promotion and tenure are the promotion process. So um, I am a full professor at this point. Very cool. Just amazing stuff, Irene. And, and I have to tell you, I followed you, and we discussed earlier that I actually attended a symposium where you had a chance to lecture and speak on the whole concept of proper running mechanics. And listen, I, I'm going to get way out on a limb a lot, and I'm going to allow you or actually give you all the license you need to, to rein me back if I start getting confused or making mistakes with my, my mindset. Okay. I preach to people about running mechanics. It's my day job. Very specifically, I'm working in the community of obstacle course racing athletes, which is kind of a new trick, right? 
there are just a scad of people in the industry and running at large, as you know, that are facing all sorts of injuries related to improper running mechanics and ultimately running shod in what would be inappropriate footwear. I think you're probably on page with me where that comment's concerned, at least. Um, Absolutely. I'd like to tell people, and this I kind of prefaced it, like I'm always telling people, you ask me what time it is, I build you a clock. But um, I tell people that there is a way to run, and there are several ways not to run. Would you agree with that theory? Well, I I think that if we were allowed to run without interference of um, improper footwear, as you've mentioned, that we would all run in a way that is natural. I think that running is, uh, I consider running um, an activity of daily living. I think it's something that we are um, born with. It's imprinted in our genes. We needed to do it for survival. And it's not something we need to be taught. I think that um, the problem comes into play when we start doing things to interfere with the natural process. Now, Having said that, can you coach someone to run better? Sure. You could also coach someone to walk better. There are people that have terrible walking mechanics as well. But um, I'm of the mindset that that running is um, not necessarily a sport, but it's something that we needed to survive. I actually enjoy the idea and the mindset that you suggested that you can guide people into a better method of running. Left to our own devices, meaning that if we were to be unshod and just allow ourselves enough time, we probably are going to fall into place anyway, eventually, and find the the appropriate path in the way we move. The unfortunate end of it is that we live in this artificial environment, which is not as permissive when it comes to running down a concrete road, which you know, some bum decided to throw his beer bottle out the window and put us in harm's way. Um, So having said that, I think that it's in order for us to have some fashion of protection on our feet often, at least when we're in these unnatural environments. Would you agree with that? I would, Um, although uh, there is a group of people that are able to run barefoot, and I'm not suggesting everyone should, but that that can adapt to all kinds of environments. So I think that we were um, adapted to run on all kinds of surfaces, not necessarily running 26.2 miles on hard surfaces and straight lines, but you know we were actually adapted to run on hard surfaces, soft surfaces, uneven surfaces, um, and all of the, for example, all of the motion that we have in the foot allows our foot to adapt to uneven surfaces. The leg springs that we have allow our, our leg to adapt to hard surfaces and make the leg very compliant um, or soft surfaces and make the leg more stiff. And that's actually driven by a lot of the sensory input that we get from the bottom of the foot. So I think we can adapt to all kinds of surfaces, even barefoot. Well, I agree with you uh, when it comes to the type of surface that you're going to run on. Uh, I'm merely suggesting that there are circumstances that uh, just afferent feedback from the from the ground is not going to be sufficient to prepare you for. So, for example, if you just kind of come up on a tack or some broken glass, you, obviously the response will be to pull your foot away from it. 
I just think for most people it's going to be too. I have a. I should tell you, I have friends that you know, as you suggested, have run multiple marathons barefoot on concrete and whatever surface presented them, and have navigated successfully through most. Um, and I have one friend in particular. I think he's run about uh, 70 marathons barefoot at this point in time. As a matter of fact, he holds the record for the Lake Tahoe Triple. He's run three marathons Friday, Saturday, Sunday on pavement. Wow. And uh, I think he's done it multiple times. But I joke with him all the time because he's, uh, I think he's from Venezuela or someplace like that. And and he's got a really heavy accent. And, And I've run with him where he was running barefoot next to me. And, you know, the painted white line on the pavement. He prefers that. So... I'd be running along, and he'd go, hey, you don't mind if I kind of, could you move over a little bit so I can, you know, he wants to get on the the painted surface because it's. So it's not so hot. (laughs) Whatever it might be, you know. That's why, yeah, because, you know, if you're on the, and I've I've never cut my foot if I run barefoot, but I have, I've blistered my feet on hot pavement. So I look for those white lines, too, when I can can get get them. (laughs) And he'll, on occasion, he'll, now, mind you, this fellow does never wear shoes. Yes. And he's starting to look a bit like a hobbit. And uh, he's come to me on occasion where I see he'd cut his toe or something. And I'm like, hey, what what, what's with the, what happened to your foot? He, oh, you don't, you know, I cut, I stuck on my, I, I kick a little thing. And he's always got this story about how he cut his foot. And I would tease him and say, why don't you put on some damn shoes, man? And, you know, and then I get into this whole thing about, hey, you're going to go on a date, man? Are you ever going to get a girlfriend? You can't go around like that. you got to put shoes on now and then. <laughs> so, so I agree. I would agree with you that, that um, you know, in our clinic, very few people want to run barefoot. I try to encourage them to try it just so they get the maximum sensory input, which is what we're supposed to have. However, I think that, you know, especially if you're running, you know, a long race, you don't want to cut your foot early in the race. And if you're not paying attention, you can. Um, So I think it's okay to protect your feet. And in fact, um, you know, there are shoes that date back 10,000 years that, you know, were developed to actually protect our feet from, you know, the elements, uh, the, the bottom surface of our foot. So, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think when we get into trouble is when we start adding, you know, um, stack height and cushioning and motion control and flares and all the things that change the mechanics in in the lower extremity. That's when I think we start to get into trouble. I absolutely agree with you. And and I should tell you that there's probably a contract out of my life from Hoka. Yeah, me too. Yeah, they're they're certainly wanting to, to have me shut down. And I actually, uh, uh, I put on clinics around the country for these athletes on performance-related running mechanics, and we do, I also do metabolic testing. And I I usually preface my clinics by doing a VO2 test and resting metabolic assessments to find out energy costs, and then we kind of dovetail that into how we move, right? So it's kind of, it's more of a performance thing than it really, but to me, I've told people many times that the path to performance is the same path to injury prevention. So if you run better, if you run well, then you can run more often, and running more often leads to better performance, and oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, da, right? Amen. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but anyway, where I was going with this is I actually had a girl attend this clinic in Vermont, and she was wearing a pair of hokas, and she literally threw them away before the end of the clinic. Wow. Yeah. So, Irene, um, I also am very good friends with uh, 
Dr. Emily Spiegel. You know her? No. She's in Manhattan. She's a podiatrist, and you should Google her. I think you'd you'd find what she does fascinating. She she has what she calls it's her site is evidence based fitness, but she teaches barefoot training. And yep. she's absolutely a student of barefoot functionality. She does not put orthotics in people's shoes, and she's a minimalist by, by nature. Wow. Yeah, which is kind of profound when you think in terms of a podiatrist. Big time. But I think you would love what she does. She actually has barefoot training clinics where she goes around and talks about proper gait patterns and how to really magnify afferent feedback from the ground and so on and so forth. And I've had Emily on the show with me multiple times over the past five years, and, and we've become very good friends because, you know, we're on a common thread, and, and I love that she gets my back when I'm, I'm espousing the value of getting away from these heavily cushioned shoes for these people that are trying to perform. But anyway, one day, check her out. Her name is Dr. Emily Spiegel. So the reason I brought her up is because we just, of recent time, had a conversation about Dr. Bino Nig's uh, muscle tuning theory. Are you familiar with this? I am. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I I don't know what I think about it. Uh, he's got a number of theories. He's got the muscle tuning theory. He's got the um, preferred movement path theory. He's got the comfort filter theory. Um, and I have the um, evolutionary theory. You know, I believe that the closer that we use our bodies to the way that they're adapted, then the less risk we will have in injuring ourselves. Um, and so I just, I don't see the clinical value of these theories that he has proposed. He's a very smart guy. I have a lot of respect for him, um, but, but I just can't wrap my head around these theories and how they relate to injury. Well, I don't know that I'm looking at what he suggested as more of an injury prevention mindset. I'm looking at what he's suggesting more from a performance perspective. And so here's, okay. what, here's what I'm suggesting. I'm looking for, and, you know, you're friends with Jay DeSherry, and, and you know, so we kind of know how he rolls. Um, yep. And I agree with a lot of what Jay has said over time about the most critical component of running is a to create stability. Um, and I've quoted him a million times where he suggested you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. You've heard him say this, I'll bet. Uh, no, I haven't heard him say <laughs> well, that, but that makes sense. Yeah, he said yep. you, you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. And the theory is in order to generate a greater stride result, let's just say that result, that you have to be stable to end up with greater force production, which leads you to a further stride. That makes sense. And so this concept of this muscle tuning theory is about how the afferent feedback helps to preactivate. And I think I've seen comments you've made about this as well, is how the body responds preparatorily to ground contact. Right. Am I good? Yep, you are. Okay, so... Uh, on that thread, getting to a place where the response from ground contact is preordained relative to obtaining this afferent information, which obviously in, in, in your world, it requires that you are exposed to the environment well enough to get this afferent feedback. But at the end of the day, what he's suggesting is that the muscles will 
dampen or or stiffen in order to uh, prepare the body for the ensuing ground force reaction, right? Yeah, but that's not anything groundbreaking. We know that in order to um, prepare for uh, an impact, any kind of impact, that the body has to co-contract the joints, the muscles around the joints have to co-contract in order to prepare for that, you know, for, prepare for that that load. Right. I don't find that groundbreaking. Well, but the idea being that if you're unprepared, that essentially the muscles' contractions are late to the party. It's more responsive than, than proactive, right? Oh, true. Yeah, so that's all part of motor control, right? Um, it's just like if you walk down a set of stairs and you aren't ready to hit that step and you or you misstep, you, you end up being very unstable. So you've got to co-contract when you go up and down stairs. You co-contract and get ready no matter what the activity is, whether it's running, walking. I mean, that principle applies to everything. All right, so let me ask you a question that might be a little bit better put. Okay. When we speak of performance relative to just injury prevention, is there a difference in the mindset in respect to the way you would would, uh, train someone to run? I don't think so, Um, but I have to preface preface this by saying, as you probably know, all of my – research and all of my clinical efforts have been in the area of injury prevention and injury treatment of injuries. Um, but I'm of the same mindset of you as you, that if you can improve mechanics, because this is, again, the lens that I see things through, although I recognize there are other issues that come into play with running injuries, mechanics is my little realm in the world. Um, and if you look at mechanics, it's going to matter in terms of performance and injury. And again, if you can, um, I, I think about what we do in our clinic is trying to restore natural movement in a modern world. So, you know, for example, we have, you talk about stability. We're very much focused on the core stability of the, of the arch and the foot um, and the core stability of the lumbopelvic region because the knee being sort of the joint in between the hip and the foot is sort of a victim in a sense. You know, it, it ends up being vulnerable to both of the mechanics of both of those, those joints proximally and distally. And so it's very important that you have that stability of those two in terms of mechanics to have good performance as well as good mechanics and, and re- injury reduction or risk for injury reduction. Right. I've told people on many occasions, and I, I'm, I'm presenting it to you just to, to have you filter me in the event that I'm mistaken, because I'll be quick to tell you, I, I know that I don't know everything, that's for sure. Me and, neither. <laughs> yeah, but I've told people many times when they ask me, what is the best core exercise for running? And I always tell them that the best thing you can do to improve core activation and develop a more stable foundation as a runner is to run properly. Well, I I agree with you, um, but sometimes people don't know how to engage their core, so we have to teach them that. So, um, And I do think it's very important when you're training someone to run um, or if you're, you're working with someone that you're trying to improve their running mechanics or reduce their injury risk, that you do actually get them to incorporate the mechanics that you're discussing not only off the treadmill or off the road, but on the treadmill and on the road. So, for example, it's not enough to get someone to activate, you know, their their 
their glutes and their lower abdominals to get good posture in that in that area and to actually get greater core stability when they're doing a single leg squat or jump but they need to be able to do that when they're running so when you say proper running mechanics if you don't know how to activate your core it's difficult for them to have that proper running mechanic so it's kind of like what comes first okay so it's interesting you say that now i'm trying to figure out i can see where if the running mechanics are flawed so let's just be clear on what that might be in my mind. Let's yeah, let's just, give an example. Yeah, let's suggest example. that we're, we're overstriding and we're okay. extending our, our leg well ahead of our center of mass on ground contact, whether it be midfoot, forefoot, or heel. And that obviously presents an unstable environment to make contact with the ground, which would lead you to be in a poor posture for activation of your core. Would you agree with that before I go any further? Yeah, I see what you're saying. So what you're saying is that you, if you have mechanics that put your core into a position that doesn't allow it to function normally. So in that case, I can see it. I can see what you're saying. So if you were to reduce their their stride length and that helps, it reduces the load on the core in a sense because you're not so, your lever arms are actually smaller when your feet are closer under your center of mass. Right. So there's less that your core has to do to actually remain stable, so to speak. Um, so I get what you're saying. What I was thinking about is in terms of, for example, one of the most common malalignments that we see in running is not necessarily overstriding. It's when it comes to injury, it's this um, hip adduction and internal rotation, that medial collapse. And I could tell the person until the cow comes home to run correctly. And until they learn how to engage their hip musculature and their core, they're not going to change those mechanics. So I, I was thinking about it in, in, in regards to that. Or you have somebody who has a very um, uh, unstable arch, and so that when they, you know, you land in inversion, you evert, and then you should invert again before you push off so you have a more of a rigid lever for a foot to push off from. A lot of people just don't have that stability, and they, they, they evert or they pronate, if you talk about the 3D motion, and they remain pronated all the way through stance, so they're pushing off in a pronated position. You know, it's, it's difficult for them until they learn how to engage the muscles of their intrinsic muscles of their arch. It's difficult for that person to change those mechanics. Right. Yeah, I definitely uh, understand that. Uh, just personally, uh, not being able to activate my glutes when I first started running and then going into learning the activation, similar to what you said, getting my body to just simply get to that activation point and then understand the running mechanics. It, it make, all makes sense. I had a, a friend of mine who is, I'm not going to use his name because I'm, I'm going to poke fun at him and I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm just not ready to throw him under the bus that deeply. <laughs> okay. But let's just, let me just share with you what he did in a clinic. And this is an accomplished ultra marathoner, by the way. He wanted to get people to put their mind in their glutes as they run. So he'd like commonly reach around on the ground for a stick to try to wedge between his butt cheeks to try to squeeze the stick while he's running. Yep. And I, I, uh, I tried often to talk him out of that during these clinics. And, and I, I just, I don't know. I mean, you think there's some merit behind what he was trying to get done? I do. Really? Um, so, so one of the things that we do are cues. If you ask somebody who's got a medial collapse of their knee, let's say, and they've got you know that knee valgus, 
Um, and you ask them to squeeze their buns like they've got a I usually use the cue, you got to roll marbles between your cheeks and you don't want to let them out. When they do that, you'll see their alignment improve immediately. Now, what happens and what we see happen is that initially you need to have this sort of mass contraction because you don't know how to modulate it yet. I mean, that, that's another level of motor control, but you can squeeze everything and get a good change. It's, I always use the analogy of if you're, shoot, you're learning to shoot baskets, you use a whole lot more muscle than you need to, and then you learn to refine the movement pattern so that you can be very accurate and you don't have to use all the muscle that you were using in the beginning. It's kind of the same thing. So, you know, in the beginning, it's good to get people to be very aware, to really um, activate those glutes and keep those knees apart. And we give them feedback on, on a treadmill, we use a mirror. Um, and then eventually we start to fade the feedback since they're not going to have a mirror when they're running out in the wild. Um, but, you know, I think it's important that you get them, teach them, because there are a lot of people that don't know how to leverage their glutes. You know, I'll put my hand on their butt and I feel nothing. And these are people who don't have a lot of fat on them, but you'll see their buttocks wiggle. You know, when I see that, I know they're not activating. Right. I mean, that's that's very clinical. It's not very scientific, but it's what I see when I'm when I'm evaluating someone in the clinic. Uh, are you, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Yonda Shortfoot. Yeah. Are, are you talking about like the shortfoot exercises? Yes. Yeah, we call them doming, but it's the same thing. Yeah. What, what do you call it, doming? It's called doming. Okay. Yeah. Well, Yonda um, like to name it after himself, so apparently. Yeah. 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 But but the point I'm getting at is that the, this whole uh, – and one of the things that Emily talks a lot about, and, and again, the, the, you go to different schools, you hear different speeches, but um, she talks about uh, ground to core and where you start to initiate these uh, sequence of contractions and essentially engaging fascia right on up into your pelvic floor. I'm of the mindset, and again, uh, I'm – I don't know everything, so I'm, I'm here to learn, too. I'm of the mind that when you make ground contact, sequentially the sequence of events that occurs up the kinetic chain is going to teach you to get into your glute and teach you to get into your, your pelvic floor and your core because the contact point is in such a more preferable position. I'm saying preferable rather than putting yourself at a, a disadvantage by having your ground contact be ahead of your center of mass. Uh, yeah, I, I don't find it that simple, Richard. Don't you? Um, so, for example, no. so if you have somebody who, and again, I'm going to use this, this media collapse because it's a really outward sign of an unstable core uh, or a contralateral pelvic drop, you know, any of those things that you can actually see. If I just simply have somebody shorten their stride, I don't, always see it improve. In fact, I seldom see much of an improvement in their mechanics until I get them to actively, consciously contract their muscles. They have to learn a new motor pattern. You've got to teach your body how to engage those muscles. And, and I think we've gotten very lazy. Uh, that's not a scientific word, but I believe that our core musculature, both in our feet and in our lumbosacral area, have become deconditioned because of chronic sitting, because of chronic support in our feet, and we have to learn to um, re-engage them again. So it's a little different approach, I think. I, I don't I don't disagree with you. I, I just I'm trying to understand. So for, for example, I'm trying to distinguish the difference between performance aspects and just a client that might come to you and present with just gross instability and, and injuries that are associated with with such. I'm looking at force production, and when you 
first of all, I don't believe in shortening the stride. The stride's going yeah. to expand behind the individual because of the yeah. force production and the eccentric energy that's gathered through, you know, the hip. And the the result being this hip extension deflection. Your knee comes back up and you hit the ground forcefully. you got gr- gravity pushing into the ground. So I'm looking at a pretty forceful contraction in a performance-oriented run, which... And I think the more force it's generated, the more activation you're going to get. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So if you look at people who are sprinters, for example, let's take the extreme of that because they have to have a lot of propulsion. I mean, they spend a lot of time accelerating, for example. Um, they they have very strong glutes and hamstrings and, and calves, all the things that are propulsive types of muscles. But when you look at, and again, I don't know what, what, what distances you're talking about. Most of the people that we, we deal with are more of um, distance runners. You know, they're running 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathons, ultra marathons. Um, and you can run, you can run, and you can actually perform pretty well. We have some people that are really top runners, uh, Boston BAA runners, that are really weak in their in their core. And eventually, I think it catches up with you, but... Um, I, you know, I think that you can do it by, you know, obviously compensating with other muscles. Sometimes you're compensating with your hamstrings, which are also extensors, and then you end up with a hamstring problem. But people can get away with it, and they do. No, I do agree with that. And I, I've seen it many times where uh, preferentially they're loading the hamstring because of the way they're running, and they just basically have gross firing imbalances, I guess would be the case. Yeah, right? They're just not using their glutes, so the only other thing that extends the hip is the hamstring. Right. Um, but using the analogy that you had just su- suggested a moment ago is that uh, when a basketball player is trying to make a shot, uh, he may initiate more movement or more contractile forces than is really necessary until he kind of fine-tunes his motor skill and he gets yeah. to that place. But I, I look at the running mechanics kind of the same way, is that you have to first find these muscles – as you yep. suggested, and then you start to find which muscles don't need to fire quite as rapidly or, or as forcefully, and then you start to find economy through that efficiency, right? Exactly. So, yeah, my runners, for the most part, and Sean listening to you right now is an OCR athlete himself, and he probably what, – what are you typically doing uh, – Super distances, which are about uh, eight, nine miles, Sean? Yeah, eight, eight to ten is kind of the distance I'm preferring in terms of specialization racing-wise. Yeah. Yep. And so, but uh, the success I've seen with the people I've worked with usually stems from, first of all, getting them to stop reaching out ahead of their body. And, and, and I've, I've learned to stop talking about whether they're reaching out, hitting their heel first, or whether they're hitting their forefoot first, because to me it's just, what part of the chain they're going to be creating the most disruption towards because you're not stable when you're hitting anyway. So and I would totally, that's one place where we could, I think part ways in our thinking. Cause you'd rather I don't see think people on their midfoot. Or foot. I'd rather see them in a, and the reason I say that is because if you go back to people who are, and this is based on just most recently, Dan Lieberman did a paper, published a paper in plus one and he looked at Kenyans and he looked at Kenyans who were mostly shod, who were sometimes shod, who were mostly mixed, and who were always barefoot. And if you look at how they land, it moves from being um, completely dorsiflexed and a heel striker for those who are mo- always shod or mostly shod. The ones that are mixed are more mid. And then the ones that are always barefoot are forefoot strikers. And if you think about forefoot striking being 
um, the way that we are naturally adapted to run, then that's my feeling. Again, I, I'm really very much uh, take an evolutionary medicine approach to the way I, I treat my patients. And I believe that we were designed, we were adapted to run on the ball of our foot. And there's lots and lots of evidence. If we just take the Achilles tendon for one, um, a lot of people say, well, you're just trading one injury for another, taking someone from rear to four because you're loading the Achilles. But I believe the Achilles was supposed to be loaded. And the Achilles basically um, is, when you look at habitual, we have a paper in, in review now with the International Journal of Applied Physiology, I believe, but looking at um, uh, habitual forefoot strikers and habitual rear foot strikers. Habitual forefoot strikers have stronger, stiffer tendons. Other studies have looked at people in, in min true minimal shoes, and again, that tends to, to facilitate more of a forefoot strike pattern, stronger, stiffer tendons. So when you look at the 52% the lifetime incidence of Achilles tendinopathy in male runners, what would those, and with 90% of runners being rear foot strikers, you wonder what would those percentages be if we were actually running the way we were aptitude. So I am much more interested in strike pattern than I am in stride length because what happens when you actually transition someone to a forfeit strike pattern is it automatically takes care of the, they tend to shorten their stride anyways or get their foot underneath them more because in order to land on the ball of your foot, your foot has to be underneath you more. So I'm a little out in the limb there, Richard, when you talk about being out in the limb because I believe forfeit striking is as fundamental to running as rear foot striking is to walking. They're well, two very different mechanics. Let me just uh, say this. I agree wholeheartedly with you, and, and I should have told you that I, I guess I've softened up a little bit to placate some of the people that want to give me this uh, better to deal with the devil I know than the devil I don't. But I put everyone in a four-foot running pattern when I work with them, everyone. And I oh, make, you do? Yes, and I make very, very strong argument for why they should do this and so early on, I prefaced this conversation by saying I believe there's a proper way to run. And in my mind, the proper way to run, is, as you suggested, is to make contact with your forefoot first. But ultimately what ends up happening, and I know you've seen this, is that when I have people transitioning and then they make new mistakes or maybe they take on too much volume or they take on too much intensity – they present with injuries to either the plantar fascia or they, they end up with Achilles issues. And then they want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They just assume that because they changed to what I told them would be the right thing to do, that it was the wrong thing to do for them. And where, in fact, they just weren't prepared for the level of intensity or volume or inappropriateness in the way they landed. Totally, totally agree with you. It's why we have a very strict program before we ever get someone on a treadmill, and they have to perform certain activities. Like they have to be able to do 30 single leg heel raises all the way up, all the way down. Um, they have to be able to do a 30, a 45 second isometric hold. Um, they have to be able to jump rope so that we see the eccentric concentric. They've got to be able to do single leg hops with good form and uh, both the whole lower extremity plus their arch. We don't let them run until they can do that. And that really essentially will eliminate. I'm not going to say 100% because there's always going to be that patient. And then there's some patients that are impatient. But but a lot of it, and we've, we've eliminated a, a, the largest percentage of that because we don't allow people to overload their tendons. Um, and so much of it is education. And fortunately, you're in a, for me, I'm in a position where people can't run and they want to run and they're really willing to listen. When you're dealing with performance and you're dealing with people who are healthy, 
50 and they don't want to stop running because you have to actually cut your mileage back and bring it up slowly, you have a much more challenging situation than I do. Oh, I, I don't disagree with that. That's for sure. And, yeah. and, and so I, I got to tell you, I preface all of the clinics and all the, the privates I do with people after I ex- explain to them, I go down this whole, you know, selling process of why and what it looks like and why they should do it and relative to what they were doing because I do video analysis for them. I show them what they're doing wrong and, you know, where the injuries result r- relative to what they're doing wrong. And then after I've gone through this whole tirade of speech to them, I stop and I say, now, before we move forward, it's important that you know that by transitioning, if you do the wrong things, you will get injured. You can't take that 50-mile week that you're doing now and just present a shift in the way you're moving and continue that 50 miles because it's going to result in injury. You've got to slow down. You've got to master this. You've got to get ridiculously slow. And I also uh, recommend that the majority of them, when they get confused, to get out onto an infield of a, 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 like a football field or something and take their shoes off and run barefoot. Yeah. And I use that kind of as a reset mechanism to, to help them to try to find their natural path. Yeah. The, the issue with which, and I'm sure they're not doing other training that way, but the problem that I have is if we want somebody to be a four-foot striker and they're going to be running on hard surfaces, when you train someone, if they do exclusive training, and I know that's not what you're suggesting, um, on soft surfaces, then what they do is they train their leg spring to be stiff, and they don't have the endurance to, to actually have their leg spring be compliant, which it needs to be out on hard surfaces. So I always suggest to people if you're going to be running on out on the roads that you need to be doing a lot of your training on the roads now you can mix it up and i think variety is the spice of life and i think variety it's why trail runners don't get injured nearly as often as road runners do because they are bearing the load and these are overload injuries but most people want to run on the roads it's convenient it's where the races occur etc so um, i think it's really important that they do a lot of their training on the surfaces that they're going to be running on i agree with that too um, yeah. So let me offer you something that has been a bone of contention for me, and let me just get your feedback on it. In obstacle course racing, realize that all of their racing, short of the stadium races, is conducted on terrain, and they wear minimal shoes in order to to race. So, I mean, I've not seen an obstacle course racing athlete, I should preface it by saying serious obstacle course racing athlete, that is wearing anything other than a zero drop, very minimal trail shoe. And then when they train on road, they commonly will have a big difference between the the format of the shoe where, you know, it might be a real heavy stack height or even a heavy heel. What are your thoughts on that transition between shoe surfaces? See, I, I believe that all surfaces should be run using the um, the minimal shoes. Um, and that you can't outrun your capacity, that's when you get into trouble. So if you can only run four miles before you start to feel it in your Achilles, then that's all you run until you can build that strength up and slowly build up the the conditioning of your calf and Achilles to be able to run further. But to change, um, you know, we do know there's a whole body of literature uh, that has looked at how we adapt our leg spring to the surfaces we come in contact with. The more cushioning you put on under the foot, the higher the impacts are. 
And so my approach is always to use a, a um, you know, a minimal shoe that basically promotes the softest landings. We did a study and we found that even a little bit of cushioning, people tend to land harder. So our, and in the studies that have been done both by Bonacci as well as by, um, uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, Squadron and Galozzi. I mean, they suggest that if you're really trying to promote a barefoot style run, running pattern, that you can't have any cushioning in the shoe. Any cushioning in the shoe promotes a heel strike. So, you know, that's, that's our feeling. That's, and, and we tend to be pretty pure in that approach. Now, do we sometimes give people a pair of slightly cushioned shoes if someone has, you know, a very prominent metatarsal heads and their fat pad is protruded anteriorly or it's atrophied? Yeah, I mean, there are times when we do do that. But, you know, our approach is really let's do the least amount of the foot. We know that the minute you do anything to the foot, when you go from barefoot to minimal shoes to regular shoes to, to hokas to high heels, that you, you add abnormal torques to the ankle, knee, and the hip. So again, we were born without shoes. We were born with everything in our beautiful feet to be able to attenuate the loads, to control the motion, to land on hard surfaces and soft surfaces. But again, I think we were adapted to be on a lot of variety of terrain, and I think that's what gets us in in trouble. So we try to promote the cross-training on other surfaces and um, try to get them to cross-train with other activities if they're doing a lot of road running. Man, I'm so glad I got you on this show. (laughs) <laughs> I'm telling you, you know, and I know you know it, but it's such a battle out there because the shoe industry at large has been confusing the crap out of people. And they get into these sales shticks where a poor individual goes into a running shoe store and they put them on the mood ring treadmill and they go, oh, yeah, well, you need the motion control or the stability shoe or you know, we got these new hokas over here that, you know, are going to really soften the load up. You need, and then I got to face all that when the guy comes to me and he's hurt and he's wearing these platform shoes that, you know, like we used to wear in the 70s and can't seem to figure out why he can't get it worked out. Well, there are a couple of studies that you can use. So there's one by Joe Napic that was published in uh, JOSPT in 2014. There was a special issue in running. I think it might have been November. And basically, he actually collated three or four studies that he had conducted individually into one systematic review and demonstrated that when you prescribe footwear in that way, so pronated feet getting motion control, high arch supinated feet getting cushioning, and neutral feet getting a stability shoe, that there's absolutely no difference in injuries if compared to just no matter what the foot type giving them a neutral shoe. So there's really no evidence for that kind of footwear prescription. And in fact, I don't have this um, this abstract, but they just had the footwear biomechanics um, meeting down in Australia. It's a satellite meeting to the International Society of Biomechanics meeting. And um, I saw on Twitter, so I'm trying to get a hold of this particular article or abstract, but they actually compared people who had gotten footwear prescribed at a shoe store in that way versus people who just went out and bought their own shoes based on comfort or whatever the color and the injuries were actually higher, interestingly <laughs> enough, in the people who got it prescribed by the, the shoe companies. I, I wish I had the reference for your for your readers, but if I come across it, I'll let you know, because I wasn't at that meeting, and it came across as a tweet 
with a you know a picture of the slide, which sometimes people do. So, um, but it, you know, it's just there's evidence that shows that this doesn't really work. And and this is you know I used to prescribe footwear that way because I was taught that. But his study started coming out in 2010, and that's what really got me to start thinking differently. If there, if there's not evidence, if you want to be evidence based, then you have to be evidence based. And there's no evidence to suggest that at all. In fact, the evidence shows that the best way to have the most natural foot strike pattern is with the least amount of shoe. Well, I could uh, personally vouch for that as I was uh, one of those mistakes. I uh, bought Nike Pegasus, uh, which had a 12 millimeter drop when I first started running, had knee issues, and then uh, actually got a coach, uh, got slowly went into ultras, uh, which are a zero drop shoe, uh, took down the mileage, and I have not looked back. Yeah. I mean, I hear those stories all the time. Irene, do you run barefoot? I run barefoot. Um, I'm actually recovering from some surgery, so I am not running right this moment, but as soon as I get cleared, I'll go back to it. Um, I run barefoot in the summertime. In the wintertime, I wear a pair of uh, Tiva Nilches, which are $50 pair of water shoes to protect the bottom of my feet because, you know, I don't want to it run in the cold um, without some kind of protection on the bottom of my foot. I think running barefoot feels great, and I think you're much more aware when you're running barefoot because you know that you can't step on things. You you can't just zone out with a pair of headphones on and not pay attention, um, and so you're 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 just much more aware. And I think if you talk to anybody that does run do any barefoot running, they'll tell you that. Um, I've never cut my foot barefoot, but I have burned it on uh, you know blistered on hot pavement. So. But I'm not saying you can, you are more exposed. Your foot is more exposed. And, you know, if I were a professional runner, I'd absolutely be protecting my feet. If I'm running a race for money, I don't want to get a cut in the race. So, you know, there, it makes sense. But I still think that if we, um, you know, if we started this with kids, and this is really where I want to see this happen. If we start it with kids, um, I, I now have grandchildren. Um, when I had small kids, my kids, I was always looking for shoes that had a lot of cushioning and support and motion control. And, you know, as a physical therapist, I thought this was best for my kids' feet. Now that I have grandchildren, I buy their shoes for them and I buy them minimal shoes um, across the board because I think if they, those feet are put in minimal shoes, they're going to, they're going to be, the muscles are going to develop to a greater degree. And then hopefully if people are running in minimal shoes, they're going to adopt more of a barefoot style running because that's what's been shown in the literature. Um, so again, I think that's where it has to happen so that we're not fighting this battle of, Oh, well, you're going to get injured. Um, it's very interesting. There was a study and this goes back to 1992. It was done in India and it was with 2,300 Indian children. And a third of them happened to come from communities that were closed-toed shoes. A third of them came from communities that were open-toed sandals. And a third came from communities where they were barefoot, approximately. And what they did is they looked at the incidence of flat-footedness. And what they found is that they, there was flat-footedness was least common in the barefoot communities and most common in the shod communities. Wow. So it just speaks to the, uh, the this whole idea of let the feet develop and do what they're meant to do. Again, go back to the fact that we were born without shoes. And for two we've been running for 2 million years, and it's only been the last 50 years that we've actually started adding all of this technology to footwear. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. That really is. Now, i got to tell you, I had a, a few clients that I work with regularly that live near me, and a couple of these ladies that train with me are, are older. One of them is about to turn 73, and she's right now training for the New York Marathon. She runs a marathon typically every year, 
uh, th I think she's run the Big Sur Marathon three consecutive years in the last three years. Wow, good for her. Yeah, and uh, anyway, I uh, and the other woman that uh, trains with me, she's 67, I think. But just for grins, I said, I tell you, we're going to do something different today. I said, everybody take their shoes off, and we're going to run in the street barefoot. And around my my neighborhood, they're just around my block. It's exactly a mile. And they looked at me like, really? You never told us to do that before. You know, I said, well, let's just, as an experiment, let's just see what happens. And I said, now, be careful. Watch where you're going. And, you know, my streets are pretty clean, so I, I wasn't too worried about debris. I said, let's just see how it goes. And I went with them. And I have to tell you, I'm no spring chicken either. I'm going to celebrate my 65th birthday this year. And in my later years, I've come to be very fond of Cuban cigars and scotch. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the, you know, the svelte, you know, 127-pound, six-footer that a lot of runners are. But we all went around the block together barefoot on the concrete. And the 73-year-old, 72, I shouldn't say 73 yet. She's going to be 73 in November, I think. But uh, she finished before all of us. And I found that about midway through the run, I started to make peace with it. I could feel my body adapting. And the, just neurologically, I was starting to make better decisions about ground contact and was able yeah. to increase my pace. And just yeah. the, the feedback I was getting from the ground, was it was startling to me how much easier and how much more comfortable it was becoming for me to run this way. And uh, I actually encouraged the, the girls to do it again. And so they went around the block a couple, three times this way and uh, were no worse for wear. And, and they were actually also very surprised at how well they were able to adapt to it and how comfortable it became, where in their mind, they were concerned that this was going to be problematic, that they, you know, that it wasn't a good idea because they're so trained to believe that it's bad juju to run on concrete with, with their bare feet, but they were able to pull it off. Yeah, I I, I find it fascinating. There was a um, I was giving a, a talk about barefoot minimal footwear running, and this 80 year old man came up to me afterwards, and honestly, I would not probably suggest that somebody 80 start trying to run barefoot because, you know, we do get stiffer and, and we are less compliant. And, um, and if he was running and doing okay, I probably wouldn't have made that suggestion in someone at that age. But what he told me is he did it. He transitioned recently to barefoot running, to complete barefoot running. And that he felt he had gained the spring back in this step. And I'll never forget it. Um, it was really quite um, astonishing that he felt that way and that he actually felt like he could run better. I mean, you think about it, all of that sensory input is really important um, in terms of our po both static and dynamic um, posture and, and gait. Uh, there was a study done, um, this was a few years back, looking at, at uh, static postural stability in single leg stance in a pair of socks versus barefoot. And what they found is that there was a statistically significant decrement in postural stability when you put a pair of socks on. And it seems crazy, like just a thin pair of socks. But you think about it, if you went around the world with a pair of gloves on, how would you feel? You, you'd, be, you'd be missing that sensory input. The, the feet and hands are very similar. So it's not surprising to me that you felt that you had, you know, more sort of neurologic input. Um, there's, this, there's another 
sort of area called grounding. I don't know if you've heard about this, and I haven't really looked much into it, but there are people that believe that there's this importance of having your feet be touching the ground and getting that gravitational pull, that that's something that we were adapted to have and it's important for our, our function. And so there are a lot of people that think that we should be barefoot so that we can do more grounding, which I think is another interesting concept. Wow. Sean, are you developing any thoughts? Because we're getting close. To, I, I could do this with Irene all day long. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm sure she would not run out of things to talk about. But, I just want to get out there and start barefoot running after this conversation. I mean, take it I've, slow. No, I, and slow. I, I've done it, um, but just seeing, you know, and hearing uh, just from listening and, and seeing some articles, I can see the benefit. And it's scary to me that, you know, we talk about barefoot running and then going to the other side of the spectrum, looking at a shoe, for example, that 12 millimeter drop, the detriment it could potentially have on your gait, and then also, you know, the, the long-term, short-term effects you can have on injuries. So it's, uh, it's really fascinating to just hear about how much benefit. And then also the, the great example with hands and feet just uh, being unnatural uh, with, with the ground. Well, Sean, you've attended one of my clinics before. That's how we met. And you, you know what I face whenever I, I see a, a new passel of people that – never met me before, and we start talking about these types of things, and they're all wearing, you know, a variety of shoe types, and some of them have been drinking the Kool-Aid from the Hoka fountain, and, you know, I get so much, so much back push um, that it's hard, and they look at me like I'm some kind of a nut job when I'm trying to tell them that they they need to, to find this this information from the ground so their body can respond more appropriately. And they, you know, oh no, I got, I got, I need the cushion, I need the support, so I get, I got to get this mattress between me and the earth because we don't get along. <laughs> I, I don't know, just crazy. You know, I always tell people if you were going to jump off of a, I don't know, a, a three foot high step, you know, or bench or whatever, and you're going to be landing in sand, what are you going to do with your legs? You're going to stiffen them. But if you land on, if you if you're going to land on concrete, you're going to land very softly, and you do. Um, so you adapt. You definitely adapt your leg spring. And there's, I, I try to educate my patients, and maybe I have a little more time to do that because I, I'm sort of one-on-one with them, and we have a little bit of time. But I'll even pull articles out of the drawer and show them, you know, studies that are not even our studies, other people's studies that show that you do land harder when you land on soft surfaces. Um, it kind of lulls you into no, you can you can be a lot more um, or a, you can be a lot more lazy is not really a good word to use, but you can certainly slam your heel into the ground when you've got that cushioning underneath you. You can't do that when you don't have any uh, cushioning between you and the ground. No, you so you're just much more soft and, and much more tenuous when you land without, you know, all of that immaterial uh, that filters that important information. So let me ask you this, Irene, uh, in going to barefoot running or just trying it out, would you suggest starting on a treadmill or starting outdoors? Because going back to the, the point of, you know, just you don't want to run strictly on soft surfaces, especially because you want to get your, your feet used to hard surfaces and whatnot. What would you suggest on that, that notion uh, for anybody going into it? I actually like outdoors better than treadmill because treadmill running, I believe you have less variability, even in your speed. You know, when you're outside running, if you have a Garmin, you'll 
see that your velocity is constantly changing. So I like the outside running. Um, it gives you a little more variety in terms of the surfaces. Um, you can uh, so, and I would start with really a hard, smooth surface that's relatively debris free, and I would start slowly. Um, you know, try a quarter of a mile and see how you adapt to it. I'd also start to incorporate some single leg hill raises as well as short foot or doming exercises. And if you're not clear on those, there's a couple of really good um, YouTube videos on doming um, or short foot exercises that can show you how to do it. But, you know, we we, uh, we get people to dome when they're standing in line in grocery stores and just to constantly be thinking about doming their feet so that when they're running, they're engaging those arch muscles a little bit more. It does put a greater load on your foot and your calf. And it is the muscles for sure that do the damping of this impact. And, and that's why you don't get such high rates of loading when you land it cuts your rates of loading in half when you land as a forefoot strike versus a rear foot strike but it's because the calf and the arch muscles are helping to attenuate that if you don't have the strength in your arch muscles then more load may go to the metatarsals the muscles are really important for maintaining normal strain environments in the bone and that was shown by some of the Israeli studies where they looked at the tibia and looked at tibial strain when you fatigue muscles during a march. And when you go through a march, your tibial strain goes up because the muscles that help to support the normal loading on that bone are fatiguing. It's the same in the foot. So, you know, those are my two sort of areas, I think, um, Sean, that I would really have you work on is strengthening your feet and strengthening your calves and taking it slowly. And I'd love to hear how you do with that. I will do that. Well, Irene, I got to tell you, that was so fun to have you on. And uh, no, thanks. I just it wanna, was fun talking with you. I want to come hang out with you. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> you have an open invitation. <laughs> I, I mean would, it. I would love, I would love to spend some time and just kind of watch you guys do your work in the clinic. Well, you both have an open invitation. That's awesome. And if you get out to the West Coast, I'll be happy to share a cigar with you. Thank you. I don't do cigars. <laughs> and I don't do scotch, but if you have a little bourbon, maybe. I'd yeah, I got, <laughs> I got a bottle of bourbon in a hole in my cabinet right now. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Irene. All right. You, you guys have a great day. Thank you. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network, drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.